Welcome to the JMD podcast, the official podcast of the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease. Every fortnight, I invite authors to discuss their papers, explain their work and delve into what motivates them to do what they do. There's a veritable cornucopia of metabolic content in our back catalogue, so be sure to have a look, but not before listening to this latest episode on Bath Syndrome. So hello. Now, once or twice a year, we like to release a special issue with the journal devoted to a specific disease or group of disorders. The January 2022 issue is one such example, focusing on Bath syndrome. And in the first of two special companion podcasts, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Hilary Vernon of the Department of Genetics at the John Hopkins University School of Medicine to provide an overview of this topic and review the current and future treatments. Hilary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Now, obviously, you're one of the editors of the special edition, but you're also an author on a couple of the papers, notably the clinical presentation of natural history of Bath syndrome, and also the current and future treatment approaches. Um, I wonder if I could ask you to begin at the beginning and explain what is Barth syndrome? Yeah, so um, Barth syndrome is an ultra rare um, X-linked genetic condition. And due to the nature of the X-linked genetic condition, it affects vastly males. There's a couple of known females that are affected. And it is a genetic disorder of uh, maintenance of the mitochondrial phospholipid cardiolipin. And that is a phospholipid that's localized to the inner mitochondrial membrane. It has uh, many, many roles specifically involved in a lot of the structural maintenance of the inner mitochondrial membrane. When remodeling of cardiolipin is defective, and that's the genetic defect in Barth syndrome, individuals are susceptible to a sort of specific compilation of symptoms that include cardiomyopathy that most often presents in the infantile period, but can present at any point, neutropenia, as well as uh, many other symptoms, including growth defects, skeletal muscle fatigue, and other things. And we're trying to draw attention to this disorder because it really severely affects those patients and families who are suffering with this disease. And also from sort of a biochemical metabolic standpoint, we can learn a lot about the role of cardiolipin on the inner mitochondrial membrane, as well as how cardiolipin contributes to mitochondrial metabolism. And, and for me as a pediatrician, I think Bath syndrome is something that gets talked about whenever we're looking at a child with a big heart. You mentioned some of the presentations there. Is it, is it always cardiomyopathy that brings these children to our attention? Um, interestingly, not always. Um, and I think in looking at the patients who have come to our clinic, I direct an interdisciplinary uh, bar syndrome focused clinic in Baltimore, Maryland at the Kennedy Krieger Institute. Most of our patients, probably about more than nine out of 10 present with cardiomyopathy in the infantile period. But we have had patients who have presented as late as the teen years with no cardiac symptoms, um, but with things like isolated neutropenia. We've had a few patients present with sort of an isolated myopathy picture. And so whereas the classical picture is early infantile dilated cardiomyopathy, there are certainly other ways that this can present. And it can be really tricky. Those patients really tend to have quite a diagnostic journey um, and trying to sort out what's going on with them. You've mentioned neutropenia as a lab finding. Are there any other biochemical findings that are going to make you start to suspect the diagnosis in these patients? Yeah. So um, in thinking about the, the CBC, the complete blood count, um, there's two things that tend to be, um, can be seen in Barth syndrome. One is the neutropenia. And that's tricky because that can be intermittent. 
it really follows no predictable pattern in most patients. And frankly, some patients can have a normal neutrophil count for 10 years and all of a sudden will catch um, an A and C of, of something below like 250, which is really quite amazing. But the thing that tends to be more persistent actually is a relative monocytosis. And I know this is something that is seen in other neutropenic disorders, but it can be a clue that there is some neutropenia hanging out there, that it's something that may be missing and the relative monocytosis is something that can be a helpful clue. In terms of biochemical markers, there's the classical finding of three methylglutaconic aciduria. It's been shown that this is not seen in all patients with Barth syndrome. So when it's present in a child with consistent symptoms, it can be helpful. If it's not present, it doesn't mean that the individual doesn't have Barth syndrome. The other thing about 3-methylglutaconic aciduria is it's really not very specific. There are a number of mitochondrial and non-mitochondrial conditions, as well as um, progesterone agents can cause an elevation in 3-MGC, 3-methylglutaconic acid. So as a biochemical marker, it, it can help. It can give you a hint that something's going on, but it's not, it's not perfect, of course. Uh, cardiolipin, sending a cardiolipin ratio in any tissue, whole blood spot, a cell line is 100% sensitive and specific. The monolysocardiolipin to cardiolipin ratio is 100% sensitive and specific in Barth syndrome, but it's not a test that's widely available. And it's something you actually have to think about Barth syndrome and then send it. So we tend to use that really as more of a confirmatory test in patients where the molecular data maybe isn't as clear for a variant interfazin, and that will really confirm the disorder. And so in, in the world we currently live in, how is the final diagnosis made? Is it typically the genetics is sent and then you're... Yeah, yeah. So most often it is finding a pathogenic variant in the gene to FAS, and that's the only gene known to be associated with Barth syndrome, and it's on chromosome XQ28. Um, and there's some really nice publicly available databases that document most of the reported uh, tefazin variants. So that can be really quite helpful. I think what's really helped the early diagnosis and accurate diagnosis of Barth syndrome is the implementation of next generation sequencing and the knowledge that children who present with cardiomyopathy really should always have some kind of next generation sequencing to look at cardiomyopathy genes. And as rare as this disease is, as rare as Barth syndrome is, tefazin is on most of those panels for particularly dilated cardiomyopathy and childhood cardiomyopathy. And once the diagnosis is made, what does the future hold for these children and their families? And knowing those genetic changes, can you accurately prognosticate what it might look like? No, you know, every child, regardless of their genetic diagnosis, is individual and unique. And the thing we always say with any genetic diagnosis, when a child is presenting with a Mendelian disorder, you know, this is one out of 19,999 other genes that also influence your disease. And so we really have to take things as they come. And we also know, even within families where individuals are carrying the same pathogenic variant into FASN, they really can present very, very differently with the disease. There are some very limited genotype-phenotype correlations within Barth syndrome. There are a few known variants that allow for a hypomorphic tefazin. So there is still some function in those patients. They still have increased monolysocardiolipin, but their total cardiolipin levels tend to be more normal. And in general, those patients do have a milder disease. But I think we can't take anything for granted, and we have to be very vigilant with every patient that we treat. In general, the, what we tell families is the most life-threatening aspect of Barth syndrome is the cardiomyopathy. That's what most patients, if they're going to lose their life to the disease, that's what they'll lose their life to. So we're very vigilant about cardiac monitoring, even in patients who have normal cardiac function. Um, we're also very vigilant about infection with neutropenia. And, and that is something that's very, very treatable in terms of prevention with GCSF and just really being very vigilant. Um, and then 
the non-lethal aspects of the disease um, can be very limiting to quality of life. And re we really work hard to kind of mitigate muscle weakness, muscle fatigue, but these are all aspects of the disease that we are always paying attention to and always monitoring and always trying to mitigate as they come up. And when you're talking about mitigation and management there, am I right in thinking that the treatment is predominantly symptomatic? It is. It is. Currently, there are no approved specific therapies for Barth syndrome. Cardiac care over the years has really vastly improved in terms of toolkits for monitoring, toolkits for therapeutics. And that's really, I think, been a key factor in extending and improving uh, the life of and cardiac function in individuals with Barth syndrome, um, as well as just really incredibly improved knowledge of how the neutropenia of Barth syndrome is managed. But these things, again, are, are very symptomatic therapies. They're treated organ by organ. And currently, again, there's nothing specific to the disease of Barth syndrome that's approved. And there's an emergency regimen recommendation, isn't there? Is that right? So um, I think that that's not something that's really codified. It's really very practitioner specific. If somebody comes in acutely ill, I have my own approach to this, which is, I think, quite similar to how uh, mitochondrial diseases in general would be approached, which is trying to mitigate bioenergetic stress. So making sure that there's no prolonged fasting, making sure that complete nutrition is supplied within 24 hours of presentation. So really not to deprive any one specific nutritional group. And I mean, obviously, we've been talking largely around Barth syndrome as a whole, but your second paper that's in the specialist series around current and more excitingly future treatment, mm -hmm. what does the future hold for Barth syndrome? Um, you know, I often get dinged for saying I think the future is very promising because there's a lot of... Um, uh, a lot of what's out there is still in the investigational phase, but but I, I do think it's promising, and, and there's a number of reasons for that. So I've been in this field for a long time. It's been about 27 years at this point that I've been working in the field of genetics from undergraduate all the way through now. And when I first started in this field, a lot of what we treat now was... Well, you diagnose something and there's just nothing you can do. You give someone a diagnosis and that's that. But over the years, the therapeutic toolkit for genetic diseases in general is incredible. And the potential for what we can do for patients, moving from enzyme replacement therapy to mRNA therapy, to gene therapy, to small molecule therapy, the rapidity with which things are being developed is incredible. So I really, really, really see not only for Barth syndrome, but for a lot of genetic disorders that there, there will be things coming and there are things in development. And I do, I do think things are promising for the future. And I mean, within the paper, you you specifically sort of call out uh, bezafibrate and mm -hmm. ilamipretide. Yeah. And so these are two studies. One was done um, in Colin Stewart's uh, Barth Syndrome Clinic in the UK, and one was done through Johns Hopkins University, where I work. And Visa Fibrates, uh, um, an agent that's been around for a little while and is really aimed at kind of improving mitochondrial biogenesis and potentially improving um, some of the features of Barth Syndrome. That study didn't meet its clinical endpoint. So I don't think that this is something that we're going to really see move into the approved sphere for Barth syndrome. And then in terms of elamipratide, that is a small molecule that binds to cardiolipin and is in tests, is being investigated in multiple mitochondrial disease, but is, you know, seems to may, maybe have more of a specific lock and key mechanism for Barth syndrome. That's another study where we didn't meet primary endpoints, but sort of long-term outcomes showed significant improvements in muscle function and some improvements in some cardiac parameters. So I think that's a drug that is continuing to be under investigation. 
But uh, whereas neither of these things are approved and one may be approved and one likely not for Barth syndrome, what's incredible to me is the fact that in such an ultra rare disease, we were able to carry out two recent clinical trials to investigate agents for this disease. I think in years past, this is something that would have been unheard of and something incredibly rare. And I think this really lays the foundation for continued investigations in other agents in this disease. You briefly mentioned things like ERT and gene therapy. They come up a lot in the podcast. Mm -hmm. Does that mean we're going to see trials around those areas or is it still a way off? So there are a couple of labs right now that are working on preclinical studies for gene therapy. And of course, among the mitochondrial disorders, those that, that have a nuclear genetic defect are the ones that are currently targetable. There's some advancements being made in modifying the mitochondrial DNA, but I think that's a little more distant in the future. But yes, there are two groups that are working on gene therapy to modify the defective tefazin gene and hopefully improve the disease. Um, and, um, you know, we'll see where those go. Gene therapy, there's a lot of bumps in the road with it. Some things really come through and seem to work, but there's a lot we have to learn. Well, it sounds like you, your optimism isn't misplaced then. I don't think so. I don't think so. And, you know, I think it's easy to think of optimism, meaning is something going to happen tomorrow versus is, is something going to happen? And I, I tend to be optimistic about the is something going to happen side of things. And we're still continuing to work with elamipratide. And so hopefully we'll have something there available, but there's still some work to be done. Excellent. Thank you so much for speaking with me. I mean, alongside Fred and, and Ron, you've put together this fabulous special issue that really captures all aspects of Barth syndrome. I hope that between this and the other podcast, which really dives right into the minutiae of the disease, uh, that we'll be able to give listeners a great primer to the condition. If you'd like to read these papers, please click the link in the podcast description or go to our journal webpages and look for the January 2022 special issue. And if you'd like to hear more about Bard syndrome, be sure to check out our other podcasts on the topic. Hilary, thank you again for your time. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.